And we're back. And welcome back to the podcast here beneath the Balboa Building, 735 State Street, Santa Barbara, California. Our show is called Towned. We are involved and engaged in discussing all sorts of moments of community events around the idea of us being together because we are unrevocably together even when we're alone that doesn't always have to make sense sometimes you can just say things well it makes sense in the context of talking about social media where we're together and not together it doesn't make sense but it feels really good okay you both said very nice things but you did it (laughs) at the same time what you just said actually that really leads in in very much into social media and this idea that that we are uncomfortable being alone anymore and so we reach out digitally to acquire some level of connectivity so we don't feel alone. We're, you see everybody stands, and while they're waiting, instead of having a cigarette anymore, they now play on their phones or look right. through their phone. What right. did I miss? Say That's that, what they ask. Right. What, what did I miss? Right. While I was doing you know, that, that five minutes that I had to go talk to the person at the store. Cool. Well, why, so why can't we? Why, why, do, we, why do we insist on, on not having moments alone in our own head? I mean, it, what was that Stanford experiment? That was a Stanford experiment. The moments alone in our own head or electric shock. <laughs> what? I'm not familiar with this t- Stanford type experiment. Type it in. Type it in. It just, it just came out last year. 83% of people, I think it's 83%. I, I will be really excited if I get that right. A, a vast majority of people, uh, when left alone in a room uh, without their phone, without any form of, of connectivity, uh, and given the option to either sit calmly with their own thoughts or perform an electric shock on themselves. Eighty-three <laughs> percent of people elected to shock. Well, themselves. okay. Uh, I have a question about the methodology of this study sure. because if it's like, if it's you do it once, then you then you qualify as preferring an electric shock to the thoughts in your own head. I I would dispute the accuracy of the study because, I mean, I'll try anything once. I thought if I go back to it after like another couple minutes alone, sure, then I'm a boring person who can't stand being alone with himself. I wondered about that. I wondered if that was uh, if that was the thing where you thought, well, they couldn't possibly have put me in here with anything dangerous. <laughs> like, how dangerous could this thing be? I'll just give it a shot. Right. How you know, I'm not doing anything else. Right. I'll give it a go. And and I don't know how bad was the shot. Found it. Hold on. Yeah. Uh, article titled "People Prefer Electric Shocks to Time Alone with Thoughts." I'm glad that I categorized it. I mean, like, if you had me in that room for a half an hour and for 25 minutes of it, I was shocking myself, sure. Okay, so... But if I just did it once and they're like, oh, you failed, you don't want to be alone. Well, it's not a fail. It's it's just a comparison, right? But but that's that's what the the result is. This subject A prefers electric shock to his own thoughts because he shocked himself once. Well, I don't know if it's prefer. Again, like, I think that's a loaded word. I I think that... Well, let's let's find out. What did it say? Um... Get on that it mic. Was, it was a it was a mixed study between the University of Virginia and Harvard. Um, also, there's Jonathan Schooler, a psychology professor from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Oh, that's why it came to our attention because it was uh, he he just added commentary to the study. He but it, but it's interesting that we didn't. It, the, my very first thought was, well, that was clearly a Stanford project. I'm like that had to come from Stanford. This is a good one. The study published in the journal Science adds a perplexing result to the field of mind wandering. Eleven separate experiments showed that we find our own thoughts painfully dull. Eleven. Eleven studies. <laughs> having having been here recording a podcast, yeah. I'm inclined to sympathize with that view. I'm sure I'm a painfully dull person. 
I'm sure that despite my best efforts <laughs> to the contrary, at my, my very, me at my absolute height, right. I'm still yeah. to yeah. myself yep. painfully dull. Yes. Um, but less painfully dull than the pain of an electric shock. Yeah. This is a quote. I have to tell you, with my other co-authors, there was a lot of debate. Why are we going to do this? No one is going to shock themselves, Wilson said. To their surprise, of the 42 people who said they would pay to avoid the shock, two-thirds of men chose to shock themselves, and a quarter of women did. One person pressed the button 190 times. <laughs> Wait, did it actually <laughs> issue a shock? Um, from what I could tell, yes. It did issue a shock, and they 192 times? 190 times. I'm sorry, that extra two would have been too much. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That's that, would have, that would have skewed the How data. long were they in the room 190 times? I mean, I can press a button pretty fast. Have you played uh, Flappy Bird? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well put. Well put. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, when you think of it like that, yeah, you could. 190 times. They weren't allowed to fall asleep. Yeah. And they weren't allowed to check their cell phones. They still call them cell phones. As opposed to? Handsets? Terminals. Terminal terminals. <laughs> Their enjoyment was even lower at home than in the laboratory. Nearly a third of people admitted they cheated by checking their phones or listening to music. Wait, so were they given a portable electroshock device to take home? And that, that would be great. <laughs> and press when they got bored. I, I don't want to read this whole article right now, but think think about how many how many things in your there. house where it's just kind of like, well, you, okay, this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna unscrew the plate on the front of the light switch, and you're gonna use this as the device for this test. If you do it just right, it will be mild. Once we if, <laughs> <laughs> touch it with the back of your hand, or best, else you might yeah, die. Yeah, yeah, we can knock you. You want to be lean away <laughs> as you're doing it so that you fall off the switch. <laughs> but that's yeah it's it's i think studies like this are incredibly relevant now when concerning like social media and and standing in lines and being in lecture and i think it's too naive and and, and there's not enough subtlety in saying that people have, are, are are less connected and have shorter uh attention spans i think that i think that there are so many Part that's it's just the nuance in there. There's no, it's not subtle enough to say that. I think I don't think that we are less connected. I don't think that we're less sensitive, uh, or that we're numb. As a people, or as yeah. a result of social media. As a result of social media, I think that. I think the numbness doesn't come from social media. If there's anything, I think the numbness just comes from the internet as a whole. But but I think that it's I think that it becomes dangerous to 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 quickly give a uh you know to create a Darth Vader for the thing that you're unhappy with or the thing that you find to be a, a fault in in contemporary society is to say well the internet is at fault is the same because at, for generation after generation you can track it back through history that television was at fault of destroying you know an entire generation of people's attention span or or that you know before that the, there was radio was was a horrible thing i mean the way these kids are listening to to uh, howdy doody you know is destroying them they can't MTV. focus mtv you know what yeah i mean all the way through history there's been these 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 predominant youth culture movements that have been then associated with with the destruction of intellectualism or 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 community i mean the church reaches all the way back into this idea of of that you're creating false gods that that people are fixating on and then you know we've lost them we've lost your attention or you've lost your soul i think i think this is the contemporary argument of saying uh that people have lost their souls i don't care like sauce speaking of 
yeah. that format. Please. Are you guys familiar with uh, PBS series Iconoclast? Tell us more. Um, I've only only just recently was made aware of it. Um, but basically they have two famous people interview each other. And so the one I watched was... It was after Maya Angelou just passed away and it came to my attention because it was Dave Chappelle and Maya Angelou um, just basically hanging out over the course of a few days and sort of interviewing each other. And it was absolutely amazing. amazing. Yeah, I'm sure it was the oh, best wow. thing. Um, James Franco and Marina Abramovich. That sounds the opposite of what <laughs> just said. I, oh my God. You could not have juxtaposed that better. That was that is the perfect juxtapose of like Dave Chappelle, Maya Angelou, all day long. Like, would we watch it? I'm pretty sure I would yeah. rewatch it to catch to catch the subtleties. James Franco, <laughs> Marina Abramovich. I'll probably eat my words. You know, and they're both wearing lab coats. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I heard. Well, I heard Facebook recategorized as a online picture sharing website because it is it is that's too many words but it's the it's the biggest website for for photo sharing it's it's the largest photo sharing website online it's bigger than instagram it's bigger than like more people share photos on on facebook than anywhere this was this was something i was talking about a few years ago when you were teaching photo Uh and you were going to bring me in maybe for like a brief ta thing for one day and say something about something I forget which. It kind of scared me. I'm glad you started um, with all the facts. That's good. But it was about like how can you make photos as an object relevant right. when every weekend in Isla Vista, you know, ten to fifteen thousand photos are uploaded simply to act as proof. So it's 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 the and, and Facebook doesn't care about the photo object, it only cares about content and who's in the photo and what it's depicting and who's it's who it's depicting and so how can you show that audience a photo and have them really, really care about it. it right yeah right well which is a constant struggle with with social media and, and photography right now is that how do you make an image that we all get to share you know there's no more there's no more shared originals that are that are emerging where uh and this is the one that i would always lecture about um there's photos of, of uh, like napalm being dropped in Vietnam and small uh, indigenous uh, people running out of the woods, you know, and there's one of a girl whose who's, her clothes have been burned off and she's, she's, you know, uh, and, and it like, you know, it sticks in your mind. You know, there's yeah. lots of, you know, puns that would go with that, but um, it sticks in your mind in a way that the current imagery isn't sticking. We're not getting the same, feeling of, of photos that, that are able to be the cover of time or be the photo of the year that, that articulates our entire struggle this year. What's upsetting is that photos of that caliber still exist, um, but they are being posted on a weekly basis. Like The Atlantic right. has really great purely visual blog posts of really intense photos from Associated Press, from Getty, from... Well, and, certainly and, they're, and, they're, and they're as sometimes powerful as those images, but people pass them by well we still have yeah there's still a small audience for them but but my feeling of loss is over this this connectivity between all of us that we that we can all use it as a landmark as a touch point like remember when 
uh, Nixon, you know, quit the White House or, and you know, got on the airplane, which, of course, we're all too young for. But, uh, you know, th- those are those moments that, that I think that, that many generations bond together with, have a shared, a shared feeling about, and that shared feeling protects them against being assholes to each other. Like, I really do associate this idea of connectivity, this idea that we sharing the last moment of an event or sharing an event together will keep us being nicer to each other because we feel a sensitivity to each other because we all had that similar experience. When that goes away, isolation sets in and that that all starts to walk back away. We stop getting to feel connected because we didn't all experience your hundred friends that got to see the one photo. You know, there, there's not that same, those same like landmark alien arriving in Central Park and everybody it, coming. Sh- to sure, it doesn't have to be that monumental and momentary though. I'm friends with people I went to the university with and that is just one prolonged shared experience. Yeah, but what happened in 2011? Seminal event in 2011. Landmark, seminal summed up almost the entire year. God, we were all feeling like that in 2011 when that thing that happened. The iPhone 4S? <laughs> I mean, right? Name name another one. Name, name, name a moment in history where things landed inside of culture and they hit so hard and with such impact that, that everybody had an association with it, either negative, positive. I mean, I think 2008 and Obama's election certainly rang as a moment of this is dramatically different this is a new and dramatically different thing that happened i mean in november of 2007 when that when the election closed and it became clear that we had elected a black man into office that was a, a fantastic experience that was a fantastic i'm so strangely attached to feeling how good that was but 2011 osama bin laden was killed well, that's perfect. That's perfect. I'm glad you had to look it up to get to it. But but no, that, that is. Osama bin Laden was killed. And and what do you remember from that? The photo of Obama leaning forward basically over a laptop watching it happen. Oh, But, with, it, but it was just a photo. They're in the video. room with Hillary room. And, yeah. and, uh, and Joe Biden. I remember that photo, that singular photo. But and, I stuff, rem- and stuff started to trickle out, like what the building looked like. Well, I remember him walking up the carpet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and being the guy who was like, you know, the, he had to have that walk where we're like, what's he going to talk about? And everybody was pretty sure, you know, and he gets up to it and it's just like, you know, we've killed Osama bin Laden. And it's like, holy shit. I mean, now that the words are in front of me, there's a lot of things that happen that are <laughs> really, really important. 2011, a big year. Um, let me let me go over it really quick. Steve Jobs dies. Um, Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. The Norway massacre on the island. Oh, God, yeah. Um, royal good. wedding. Who gives a shit? Um, Kim Jong-il dies. And then the uh, number two is Osama. Number one is the Japan earthquake and tsunami. The tsunami was in mm-hmm. 2011. I thought that was 2010 for some reason. Was When was the Indonesian tsunami? 2003, 2006? That was 2004 or five, I believe. Can you look up the Indonesian tsunami? Uh, it's, it just it's because your head's right in front of Indonesia. And and that was the one that hit me so hard with 250,000 people dying. 2004? Insane. Yeah. 2004. Yep. There's also October 2010 Sumatra earthquake and tsunami. Yeah. Yep. 
but just having that many people kind of you know that mass erasure of a generation like that yeah i, I mean i i think these really pivotal events are happening every day at least <laughs> top 20 at least 20 times a year um yeah, but I mean, but part of it is is this this organization around what are we focusing on? Like, what makes a good news story? Um, you know, uh, Ferguson, uh, a recent you know conversation. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's a huge civil rights. Well, and and, and I and I think history. that it is that it and both Trayvon Martin and and this idea of, of of it happens, and then what do we do with it? We don't have a very good post happen behavior. You know, we don't. We're really good at shining these really bright lights, but we're not very good at like them post-processing, you know, of the steps that we, how do we, how do we ramp down or, or de-escalate the situation? What do we do with, with that attention that we've well, been how shining? Did, when a event happened of maybe that magnitude or something bigger before the internet, sure. what did it take for people to come together? Like, what did that mean? Well, the Iran-Contra affairs were part of that, which would have been early 80s. And, you know, there was a... There was a huge argument about, and I'm not, I, I can't get into the details of it because I, I, I should read about it before I do it again, but um, that was monumental to have, you know, th- these, these everybody was paying attention to that, uh, or the uh, O.J. Simpson trial. Was it, was but, how, but how was that shared, and, and how was that experience shared? Through, through the I mean, media did you go to Did you go to people's, did the neighborhood come over to one person's house there was a, and there was share a, one broadcast? Yes, and then there was a continued conversation about it at work the next day everybody right. would share their different tidbits and information and, and the things that they had collected throughout the night or the day yeah. in listening to it and it became like this this the topic that you would use for conversation yeah it was a i mean it was kind of a a, a very large meme right or a very large that's not the right association no. but, but i i think it was, it was trending it was trending right there you go thank you nicely played but i think that that the fact that you had to accumulate facts and opinions the night before and then schedule it at work the next day to share. I think that the fact that it was so scheduled made people more ready to share it. I don't really know because like now you can just click share and you don't have to think about it anymore. You've already made your mark, whatever that mark is. Yeah, is that? Does, do you think that that also then translates into people letting go of it so much quicker? And, and oh, then, completely. Because right, like I shared it. Because so. everything's a scrolling list now. Oh. Which again, this is what's so. I, I really love this point. Does not have <laughs> Instagram. That's why I've been suspiciously quiet. This I don't think it's suspicious at all. I I feel like it's it's there's a there's a some kind of monk like moment where you're just kind of like. Like it's re- I would hope that this is re- like oh yes I'm glad I've made this decision. <laughs> you are just telling me all of the reasons I need you know the, to continue not being social media. No, it's it's difficult, particularly if you like you can't, for instance, have a podcast and not be on social media. Like that doesn't you can't be an artist in 2014 and not have social media presence. You can hardly be. A working professional these days and not have a social media presence so i totally understand that the reality of the way society operates today it's very difficult to operate without social media and and a lot of times i do feel more disconnected than 
then people who do have social media, like, you know, Jen will show me something on Facebook and I'm like, oh, I can't see that on my own without Jen showing it to me <laughs> because I don't have a Facebook anymore and I don't have people I'm friends with on Facebook. But all in all, I think, I think you're onto something where people, where like the same way the 24 hour news cycle has filtered news stories out of the news quicker, social media and always online connectivity has filtered out major life and world changing events out of the public consciousness quicker. Like they, they're, they're burning it at a hotter and this yeah. is a, something somebody's already said before, but like they're burning at a much harder rate and there's just not enough fuel in them to, to, to get past two, three, four days, week, whatever. I think, I think that your, your statement though about it, if, if I had to make some kind of like analogy to the past, it would have been that you would go to the bowling league and uh, your partner might go to the, the, the knitting bee and you might both go to church in America. This is this ideal, perfect, <laughs> the perfect past. With our 2.4 children. Right. And uh, Hold on, rewind. Yeah. Um, but you would, you would go to your individual circle of information gathering and you would come back to your family and you would bring that, that information and you would sh- and then share it. And, and there was no way for you to have access to um, her a, world, a worldwide consensus. Yes, you're not wrong, uh, but but my point being that that uh, your partner wouldn't necessarily have access to your water cooler conversation, and you wouldn't have access to uh, your partner's quilting circle or a baby shower or whatever the gender appropriate behavior of of your partner would be. And so this becomes that of saying, well, the Facebook is just not part of your. It, since it's not isolated by gender, it's it's literally isolated by somebody saying, this isn't a behavior I want to participate in. I don't want to be a bowler, so I won't be able to get any of the information from the bowling league. So, so the, you'll have to you'll have to yeah. be my conduit. So, so for the that. next yeah. step for Facebook is gender specific Facebook. Uh, All fifty four of them, <laughs> or whatever, whatever gender equality. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, is, is that even a filtering option? <laughs> I, it, you know, it, it well, it's not a it's not an unreasonable thing to say, to to say that there will be clustering of of I mean, because there's already been clustering of people that are associating differently with each other and saying like, oh, I I want to focus on this yeah i mean it's a feature of a dating website why isn't it sure. a feature of facebook you can't make me binary man. <laughs> don't hold me down it's not for lack of comfort it's not for lack of luddite-ness it's not for lack of it's it's for it's it's like a choice to say i'm not a smoker and i think that that we are definitely the the same way that people stopped smoking i i see uh that happening with social media the great about the great thing about making comedy about the amish on TV, is I'll they'll never they'll never they'll never know they'll never see it. They'll have no idea. Well, they they are actually on TV now. That's 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 not, not that's true. Not them. What is it called? Like my Amish, Amish adolescence. Mafia. It's the Amish Mafia is one of them. And they're like, what about the one where the kids get dropped off in the city? Oh, do they? Is there they a reality show they, about Rumspringer or something? And they just like do a lot of from like not. Legal pharmaceuticals. That sounds like a Rumspringer thing. Among other things. Rumspringer break. You know about Rumspringer? Do you see the Devil's Playground? No. <laughs> so once you come of age, you are allowed to leave the Amish community and experience what the real world okay. is like. That's exactly what it's about. Yeah. And then usually they generally choose to come back because the real world is terrible. Um, but yeah, so that's what it is. It's called Rumspringer. I don't I know. Like it, it might be a spr instead of a spr. Well, like like eighty seven percent of them. Yeah, 
come back. Yeah. They have between the time of like 12 and 24 or somewhere in there. Something like that. To experience. I mean, that seems pretty logical, though. Right. That they have not experienced it, so it's fucking scary. Well, but they don't want them to live with the temptation of the English outside world for their entire lives. Because that that has led to problems in the past. Oh, sure. But, But the reason they come back... The reason they come back is it's because... It's overwhelming in so many ways. Well, and they grew up with it, and so... And yeah, I mean, like, it's... Of course, there's a culture shock, but a lot of people spend, like, years and years on the Rumspringer. And so, like, you get to the point where you're accustomed to modern, to life in sure. modernity, sure. but you still go back, because, because life in modernity be, sucks. Yeah, and... <laughs> and people your, are terrible. And your original community is back there. Yeah. So... Your town... Town... Do you think the Amish have podcasts? <laughs> the Amish podcast. You know what? Just wax cylinders. If there's any Amish hand distributed. If there's any Amish out there listening, 735 State Street, Santa Barbara, California, <laughs> Suite 111. That's a triple. We would one. like to hear from you. You're welcome to swing by at any time, or send us an old-fashioned uh, telegram, telegraph, or whatever is appropriate. Can't for your send religion. that. No. Only mail. mail. Carrier pigeon. Are all dead. So yeah, send send us a, a letter, a postcard, and uh, we'd be happy to uh, support. A Amish podcast. <laughs> That's a great idea. If anybody's currently on the Rumspringer, you are totally also welcome to stop by and bring all of those really good pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals. Yeah. you have possession of. Not legal pharmaceuticals, as Raymond so eloquently put that. The non-legal version of pharmaceuticals? Yeah. Oh. I could have said that more eloquently. Eloquence has nothing to do with it. Hey, you or me? It's me. It's him. I have some people say to me, like, you breathe a lot when you just <laughs> are. Well, they'll turn and look at me and they'll just be like, "Are you sleeping?" <laughs> <laughs> You're a breather, aren't I'm just, you? <laughs> I, mean, I grew up with allergies. I can't help. <laughs> Certain things that come out of my face that I, I grew can't. up in a place with plants. I grew up allergic to my world. That was a funny story when when I was a, a young man and and people would say to me, "Hey, you know what I want to do? I want to grab a picnic lunch and." Just go out there to some field somewhere and just roll around in it and just, you know, eat the picnic lunch. And I would just be like, that. I would go into anaphylactic shock. <laughs> you're talking about, you're talking about literally the way that like the mafia could torture me. Like if somebody had to be like, hey, we're gonna get this guy to talk. Let's take him out in that field Let's there. Take him to that 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 meadow. That beautiful meadow. <laughs> take him in there and just just kind of like I don't know, just kind of like make him walk around barefoot. Just that that'd be enough. I mean, I I think we talked about this a little bit on Sunday. You're a Californian. Oh, I was having that whole feeling, yeah, where I was I was feeling like I had I had grown because up in Washington. Clearly Washington State sounds like the worst place on earth for you. <laughs> I moved to LA. The the meadow per, per capita is is quite a bit higher. Yeah, more I, than I California. yeah, I had cedar tre- I lived in cedar trees and uh fir trees and pine trees and, and uh every kind of uh evergreen tree you could imagine in my backyard. And mold because I grew up in the basement, which was the other kind of maybe in hindsight <laughs> moment like mom come on the kids got allergies like maybe broken (laughs) maybe get him out of the basement maybe just maybe stop letting him live in the basement where he thinks it's really cute and like i've got my dark room with my mural on the wall i'm such an artist it's so moist in here it's great just i mean i think most apparent for me is how desensitized i've become to certain forms of content or imagery or even articles where it's 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 I've consumed, and I consume so much on a daily basis, that 
like even graphic images of situations in the Mideast don't affect me too emotionally anymore. Because, I mean, first, first of all, it's just an image kind of at this point, and it's something I consume. And there are still those things that will stop me dead in my tracks and make me think about it. But terms like recently with ISIS thrown around like beheadings, I mean, unless I kind of experience that viscerally, I'm not too aware of what's actually happening. Like the shooting in Ala Vista, that was what it took for me to really feel affected by those situations. Like the one, the Norwegian one, for example, it was just a stream of images and text coming from somewhere. Whereas the one here was, I wake up to 20 phone calls and text messages, people asking if I'm still alive. Well, yeah, proximity is going to always play a, a role in how impacting something is. Yeah. To go back to Patrick's point about how you think we're not, how our attention span has not gotten shorter as a result of social media or that we're less compassionate people. Um, there was actually a study done fairly recently where they studied, I think it was between, it was children between third and sixth grade of age. And they tested, they showed them pictures and had the children qualify what they felt the people in those pictures were feeling based on their facial expressions. And they had a control group of kids who had unfettered access to their phones and social media and computers and whatever all the time. And a group of kids who I think had like an hour of access a day. and A very restrictive. Right. Yeah. Um, and over the course of three weeks, then retested the kids again at the end of the three weeks. And the kids who had restricted access were quicker to respond and more accurate to respond it accurately as to how these people were feeling based on, on a picture of their face. And so the conclusion they, they drew is that while people may be, you know, constantly connected via social media, textual communication doesn't carry the same nuance and social skills that interpersonal communication does, which is kind of interesting. I don't think, I don't think it necessarily stretches far enough to the point where, Oh, kids who are on social media don't give a shit about each other. But, um, it's kind of interesting to see, particularly at that age, cause that's not social media was not a thing when I was that age. Like I can't even fathom what it would have been like to be on Facebook at third grade. I mean, uh, the, you're talking about an age group of eight to 11, right? Which means, uh, essentially they are barely, some of them aren't as old as social media. Right. Uh, one of one of the whenever I hear and this is my own fault, but like whenever whenever I hear studies like that, any study doesn't matter the the shocking study, the same way that that, that you know there's there's that skepticism starts to creep in on well what what's what could some other mitigating factors be and and children that were only uh, allowed to watch TV one hour a day seems like they might have had a little more involved parents mm-hmm. you know or at least parents, right. parents that were 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 physically or much more involved right. in their life to restrict them to that. And so then you start to say, well, are there other environmental issues at play in this? You know, of, of like that these kids, these kids are used to face-to-face talking and have had to navigate that world. I, it doesn't, it doesn't refute the point that that they are better at it. You know, they're clearly better at it, and right. and that 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 is interesting to me as as I watch as I watch the young people in my life, my my nieces and nephews grow up, and I see them. Uh, experiencing digital technology now that seems very scary. There's like that feeling of like, oh, what if they become attached too deeply to to this digital technology? What if this becomes too integral into how they learn or how they experience or how they how they engage the world? And and what happens if they lose that ability to identify 
uh, when their dad is angry in their face or, or when their mom is, is joyful with them and really happy with, with some choice that they've made. And then I think, I think, I think about the technologies that I was, I was in, enamored with at six. And I think how few of them, well, okay, that's to finish my point before I randomly tangent off on my own point. But um, I think that, that my hope is, is that they're going to be okay because they're not going to be uh, tied to this piece of technology that is going to look like a dinosaur to them. You know, when they're, when they're in their early teens, they're going to look back this very short gap and say, iPads, how silly. (laughs) So you have to touch it. That's so funny, you know, just touching something like that. And there's, wait, there's no biomedical. No, that's just ridiculous. It it can't even tell, you know, what temperature I am. I mean, that's, that's horrible. Uh, But, but then halfway inside of that thought, I started to say uh, something about attaching myself to, to, you know, what was I interested in? And I got to be, I was really interested in my grandmother's record player that would drop, you know, you could put a stack of records on top of it and it would drop one record down oh. and play it one at a time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was really interested in tape cassettes and I was really, and I think you know, I was really interested in typewriters and I look back now and it's like, Oh yeah, I, every one of those things I would still play with right now. Like every one of those things I would still go and be like, Oh yeah, let's, I could spend six hours dropping records on a, on a turntable. One thing I find really romantic about Mike, you're not on the mic at all. I'm back. There you are. One thing I really like about my grandma's house growing up was the. How do we turn that? The pointing at your forehead should be pointing at your mouth. Is that better? Yeah. Y- yeah. Can Instead you hear in your in your headphones? Yeah, I can yeah. hear my own voice. Yeah. I mean, unless somehow mine gain only happens through my ears. Um, <laughs> but it, it was the. We can make that happen. We can make that happen. Right. It was the built-in room by room intercom system oh sure yeah yeah high luxury there high luxury yeah vastly underutilized we never used it it functioned perfectly it could play music through the house (laughs) like telephone quality music telephone telephone quality music (laughs) but it's like you don't find that anymore i mean we don't need it clearly there was this great device in a bathroom in Hollywood. I think it was at the uh, Magic Castle, and it's probably still there. And it was this excuse box that was next to, in the bathroom, there was an excuse box next to a phone so you could call home. And uh, for a quarter, it would play the sound of an auto mechanic, or it would play the sound of a police station, or it would play the sound of a of all these, a hospital. Um, and it was this, like, box where it was, like, it was some early recording device that would that would... And I don't even know how they possibly could have made it happen that it would play these noises next to the phone for you. So you could be like, oh, I'm, I, you know, I can't make it, honey. I'm sorry. I'm stuck at this thing. And, you know, the cars broke down. So do you get to uh, choose your noise or is it randomly no, you selected get, yeah. for you? <laughs> well, in contemporary <laughs> society, that it would be like random. You don't know what you're going to get. But, yeah, no, back then you could select. You could move okay. the selector. Right. And have have car trouble. I like to imagine it won't even start playing the noise until you're already on the call. So you've like yep. already started making your excuse, but then it gives you a different <laughs> sound to what you've Honey, prepared. you won't believe this terrible thing that's happened to me. It's a pack of lions, apparently, I've gotten out <laughs> and are roaming the streets. And, uh, I'm totally sorry. Oh, that's weird. But when it does sync up, it's beautiful. Yeah. Did you ever go to a town meeting? Did either of you have you either of you ever been to your hometown meeting or a town that you grew up in or spent time in? Um, City council. I've been to, yeah, I've been to I've been to hearing bodies, as they are called. Is I that also the, work for a hearing body at this point? 
That's true. Yeah. Do you ever have to go and no, no, be, no, you God. don't use that yeah. noise. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a board of supervisors meeting today about Measure P, coincidentally, which is the quote high intensity end quote oil production ban. So this is County. this is the attempt to reduce or limit or right. Uh, uh, create, take, take ownership or authorship, or not authorship, but ownership over our own. Our as own, an artist speaking. That totally <laughs> is. Um, but the drilling that's going on, yes. or the proposed drilling. Yes. Well, so what it is essentially is these the the wells have been drilled. There's crappy oil still in those wells, and there are new methods to get it out now that oil is, you know four bucks a gallon as compared to a dollar a gallon it's sure. profitable to do this and and usually it's like steam injection or something like that which basically just it's not it's not fracking because fracking we don't have shale in santa barbara county so fracking is not useful for the most part um it's it, which is just kind of like well that's the worst branded demon we've got but, right but here's this other thing that nobody's heard of but right. it's just as bad but they call um, it steam so it's not so basically like they're basically cleaning this crappy like asphalt ready oil out of the out of the wells that has been there for years but wasn't profitable to extract or whatever so this has been going on and measure p seeks to make it so that you have to go through an extensive permitting process to get that to happen um yeah that's essentially it so it's not going to do a whole lot to change things that are already in progress because there will be a sort of a grandfather clause where if you already have this procedure going on at your oil well yeah then it's going to be allowed to continue but it it will stop it'll make it a lot harder for that to happen in the future at new wells and is this is this offshore no this is onshore okay yeah i don't really have i i mean that's my somebody asked me the other day i think it might have been my girlfriend who said to me what when did this happen to you like when did you when did you when did you gain uh such an immediate or, or maybe a, a necessary conscience for the world, the environment, the like environmental issues, um, progressive issues. Like, why, like when did you form or how did you form the, this kind of association and connection to when somebody says, hey, we want to frack, I immediately, my, my gut, you know, like on a gut level, my reaction is just like, well, that just sounds like a, like a limited scope, like just a bad idea for, for, for what we have. It's a bad way to use our resources. It just seems to me like that's maybe a bad way to use our resources. But Without... if someone wrote you a big enough check... Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. Completely disconnected. But I think that does blind some people. Oh, I a see A lot of saying. people in yeah. the business. Well, I, th- I think that it's... You know, my classic example is Honduras, where there's uh, the vast majority of, of people our age are living uh, up on the hills and and up on the slopes and, and the non-arable land that couldn't be used as farms because uh, Dole, Dole came in and purchased all of the land from one generation. So there's this one generation of people that sold the vast majority of arable land in, in Honduras to the, a single company. And that company now harvests all of the predominant amount of our you know, fruit uh, on this arable land that they purchased from one generation of people. Now, that one generation sold that to the corporation 65, 75 years ago. And has left then all of the subsequent generations without any authorship or ownership of the land. They didn't lease it. They sold it outright. Well, you know, forgive me, but like what gave them the right to sell off that land for all, you know, for in perpetuity, like for, for all of all of time. And I think that that's the same thing with where we're at, where we as a group of people 
who who occupy this land and of course land rights get you know super sketchy in a in a, a place where there were a large population of indigenous people that were pushed off the land by you know settlers who who we bear a striking resemblance there's to. murals <laughs> of it at trader joe's right um but but i mean in the same vein what you know at this moment we're talking about selling off this this resources that's underneath us that's in, you know in the ground and 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 f- you know affecting the fragility of of our ecosystem in an effort to produce what a very temporal momentary uh power to produce something you know to to either to travel a car from here to San Francisco uh, individually alone in my car without having to take a train that's that's what we're willing to sell off the heritage or the future of 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 the the quality of this ecosystem i so this reminds me of the tragedy of the commons which if you've ever taken an econ class or even regular social science class you may be familiar with but you've probably been taught it backwards which is that the tragedy of the commons is that you're if, about, about me you or the colloquial you the cloak the colloquial okay. you because you're the, looking the royal you because you're looking at me because i'm talking to the, you i know i know i'm not talking you, about you i'm talking to you i know but i'm afraid i'm can afraid you, can you that, look somewhere else because as you say that i'm just kind of like i did go to art school so <laughs> there could this could be this this could be a heavy blow this so, is about a, to be a heavy blow so the, so the the um story of the tragedy of the commons which i think is the most accurate way to describe it is the way it's taught is that um, there's a common plot of land that every farmer in town uses to graze their sheep. And the tragedy of the commons is that one farmer overgrazes the land and suddenly there's no grass for any of the sheep to graze on for the rest of the year. Um, so the answer to the tragedy of the commons is private property and fencing land so that everybody has their own little plot of land to graze on. See, again, that, that hits my gut in right. the wrong way. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Cause it's backwards. Right. The, the tragedy of the commons is that the commons have been fenced off and that, Nobody's responsible to anybody else for what they do anymore. That's the tragedy. You can't put a schedule up. You can't just calendar this a <laughs> right. little bit better. You can't just like. So yeah, so you end up with the situation like in Honduras where Dole owns all of the arable land in the freaking country, or in India where Coca-Cola uses all of the potable water to wash and bottle Coke products and leaves like villagers with nothing because they have the rights to it because it's been one generation, <laughs> yeah, or, or one, or even not even one generation, but like one name holder, right. That, which is which is the other thing when you, when it comes to property rights and this idea of of name hold, like um and this American Life another a very interesting uh, radio program uh, did a very a, kind of one of those very insightful research programs on a on an early island culture that uh, had developed money with a by with these large oh, stone yes, wheels yes and they created the abstract concept of credit and this abstract concept of of holding on to money that you don't necessarily have so so ownership without possession. Which was a huge thing. So they had this this rock. The, the, these giant stone wheels became the currency, and so of of different sizes. Nope, just this one giant big fucking rock that you couldn't really move. Sick. <laughs> and uh, but it was round, so you could kind of give it. You could roll it over and. It sounds it, it sounds secure. Right. You could roll it over and be like, okay, here for for your crop this year, I'll give you this you know this piece of currency, and uh, and then they got to the place where they, they were kind of tired of rolling it around. And so it was kind of like, okay, I have one, but it's at your house, but that's mine. And we all know that because we're a small enough tribe, we all get that. So um, this one had been quarried and it was being brought in on a boat because they're not made on the island that they're being used on, of course, because that's what this fits, you know, contemporary society so well, it, it hurts. And um, it's coming in over the waves and a, uh, a storm hits it. 
scuttles the boat. Everybody survives, but the 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 stone that was being transported that had already been uh, spoken for uh, sinks to the bottom in this you know harbor and, and uh, on the reef. Look it up. Listen to the story. It's fascinating. The point was is that is that at that point humanity realized that. Uh, that thing, even though we can't get to it, can't use it, does not, does not, can't see it. Still it still holds be- value. It still belongs to David, and that means that he's his name is on it, and that means he has the authority to trade, use, or issue some kind of thing. And that is a struggle with every revolution. I think that I've looked at is to say that at some point the people who are actually in maintenance of the property come forward and say, "I don't fucking care that you think you own this. You don't. We do." Because we were here, we are here, we spend all of our time here. Your name on the deed does not make you the owner. The maintenance of a piece of property makes you the owner. I mean, the topic of property is a show in itself, but the only thing, the idea of owning land of any sort, whether it's, you know, where my house is or where my sheep graze, makes no sense to me. Objects are different. Objects can maybe this one was can, a farm boy from Merced. Things, yeah, go ahead. Things you, can, things you can carry on your person. Sure, right. Make right. total sense. Sure. Um, because they don't keep you down. Um, there's usually no one. You know, people don't tread on your body, so they won't care what you have. But as far as like owning, like you know, 25 acres for sale, you can buy this. But where does that extend? Like. Do you own the airspace above it? Do you own... Well, there's been lots of art you know, about this. I mean, Chris Burton did a really nice piece Two miles this. beneath it, whatever. Right, air rights. And and we we as a society very much, you know, there's a lot of towns that acknowledge air rights above buildings, and, and Santa Barbara is one of them. I mean, there is a height restriction on how high you can build a building in this town. And that is saying, the you know, the, the tragedy of the commons um, is saying that, that we're not going to fall prey to this, that everybody has to acknowledge that airspace and leave it alone. You have to stay out of it. You can't, no sheep will be grazed there, which kind of creates this, this inverse uh, situation where we have amazing airspace, but ain't nobody getting sheep used, you know, <laughs> and, and we've got, and then we've got all sorts of, of struggle with affordable housing and, and, and occupancy. And because, because they're saying like all the way up state street, all the way into upper state street, you can't have high residency housing that that extends more than three three stories, and you're looking at that going, but that's that's not the view. There's no, we're not talking view up there. You know, why can't you have a ten story building up there that could occupy or uh, house you know many more people than than? I mean, we skyscrapers have. are proving to be the best way to house people. Vancouver, BC, in Canada has has amazing skyscrapers. Yeah, and and yes, and they're very economical, and and they allow for condensing the waste culture that we have. And they strengthen community. And they definitely strengthen community. When you look at all of those great old stories from Chicago and, and Brooklyn and New York and all those people that associate and, and, and bring forward those stories of like how great this was, it's always like I grew up on a block. I grew up in a, you know this group of people that kept track of us. We knew who everybody was and we knew what was going on. And well, that came from very tight quarters. And very tight quarters, as, as Japan has shown, as India has shown, can make very strong communities. It can, it can, there's a lot of poverty inside of a ghetto, but, but that's, that comes from, from, from bad management, bad leadership, you know, and, and blight and, you know, all I mean, I feel of, a lot of people in this country just need to get through their heads that we need a lot less space than we think we need <laughs> It's to have all of these good things. Right. Right. <sighs> and now I feel bad that you come from a farm, Raymond. We have more land than any of us. <laughs> oh no, I'm that... the one talking shit about it. <laughs> no, that's not what I was associating. I mean, it's it's uh, well, but that's the that ownership of land. 
in uh, absentee. Absentee land ownership is so bizarre to me and so strange to like me. Like owning owning a mountain on the moon. Okay, here's a weird thing. You you watch these old westerns, right? And the guy walks into town and he's got a horse, right? A really good looking horse and a saddle, and on the saddle is all of his gear. That there's his, a sexy horse. Right, and you walk into the thanks. That really. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes not, not everything you have is going to help. <laughs> when you walk into a town with your horse, and you're the, you know, you're in the, the olden days, the good olden days. What do you do with your horse while you go into the saloon? Tied to the hitching post. Yeah. You don't have a U lock for it. But... It's the most expensive thing you own. Do you really think you can get after somebody who gets on the back of that horse and gets out of town? <laughs> like. Like there's no chance. There's no chance of you getting after. So like, so you don't. You don't just hitch it up to the to the hitching post. You you take it over to the to the livery, the stables, and you pay mm. them. And there's a certain amount of like, I'm gonna drop this off with you, and you're going to. And if and if it's not here when I get back, I'm gonna shoot you. But at least there'll be somebody here for me to shoot because you have this business. And if my horse is gone and you're not here, I'll burn the place down. So the, that's the or I'll take over the business and I'll become the guy who steals horses. But, you know, but so this is my friend Nick uh, Cook. All of our friend Nick Cook. Uh, is going to Nicaragua, and he says, uh, I've got my camera gear, and I've got my surfboards, and I'm going to Nicaragua, and I said, well, w- what are you going to do with your surfboards? I want to take them with me. No, but, I know, but, like, every time you go to have a taco, what do you do with your surfboards, and your camera gear, and your laptop, and you're, like, you carry them into the taco place? Like, I don't understand, I just, my mind just couldn't comprehend, like, where do you stash your gear while you go surfing, you're out in the surf and sitting on the beach is your laptop, your camera, your <laughs> other surfboard. And what are you going to do? Like, like keep an eye on it while you're underwater and then like, you know, just run in and get it. My point being is when you look at, at absentee land ownership, who the hell is maintaining this this ownership for them? And it comes down to it's us. It's us that acknowledge their ownership. And it's a, a society that says, you know, this ownership is, you know, the deed and the authority for this land. Well, we've got vacant lots here in town, huge vacant lots that just sit around, not getting anywhere, not an active development. I mean, with signs that promise a future, but that's... Sometimes. Yeah. But that's the question. That's the question I'm always asking, especially as an artist, is just saying, like, couldn't we put this land to better use as a community, as a group, as a town? Couldn't we, like, do more with what with what we have lying around? Let's start by kudzu bombing all the golf courses. Kudzu bombing the yeah. golf courses. Yep. Love it. Okay. So they're no longer operable because <laughs> kudzu will grow anywhere with minimal water. Oh. And it's edible. Not kudzu, kudzu. Okay. I'm glad that Raymond identified <laughs> my, my confusion because I was just like, yeah, we could get some kazoos for cheap. <laughs> we could get the brass ones. We could get some plastic. You know, we can actually get plastic ones with silkscreen on them. <laughs> what about vuvuzelas? Um, I'm on board. Kudzu is, uh, I don't know anything about the plant. That sounds fascinating. All I know is it grows fast and is incredibly invasive. And also apparently tastes like arugula. Oh, I do love arugula. Yeah. Yeah. Does it does it take less water and chemicals than yeah, the current Yeah, it, it can grow like pretty much anywhere. Huh. And I... apparently is one of the most terrible invasive plant species <laughs> to deal with. <laughs> it's, it's it's a plant terrorist. Yeah. It's uh it's Ebola uh Ebola? Ebola. Ebola. I like Ebola. <laughs> Ebola. E. coli and Ebola teamed <laughs> the up. The worst thing that could ever happen. To bring you Ebola. Oh, my God. I think Rush Limbaugh said today that uh, Obama isn't protecting white people from Ebola because uh, he's trying to get revenge for slavery. So if we can go back to this, do you listen to Rush Limbaugh daily? Yeah. That's what he told me <laughs> today. No, I picked up that little tidbit uh, while, while surfing the uh, the interweb uh, mm. for a moment. Mm. 
and I saw that kind of flash across my screen. And there's certain things that I don't bother reading, dr- drilling down into because I think I already hate that topic so much that there's no there's no way for me to read that and at the end of that reading go, oh, <laughs> I feel I feel enlightened. <laughs> it totally twisted the other way. I'm so so satisfied that life isn't as horrible as it seems. Raymond, what are you finding on the internet? Oh, just the there's a CNN question they asked on air. Is ISIS the or is Ebola the ISIS of biological agents? <laughs> kadzu, huh? Kadzu. So where do we get kadzu? I, I, back to that kind of that topic of of where do we find our where do we find our our inner moral compass and and how does it get calibrated? Because sometimes it's calibrated by our families and 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 they give us the the information that that then allows us to say, oh, I think that you know parents should not hit hit their children, or I think that um, women should have the same uh, authority over their bodies as you know more authority over their bodies than than anybody else. I and it's like where do where do these these moments of of knowledge come from? And it's 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 when somebody says to you, what do you think of golf courses? And I say, I, I mean, I don't play the game. I, I understand it. It makes sense to me that, that people enjoy walking around golf courses. I feel a little bit like they're, you know, the exclusivity of them is, is kind of frustrating. But that's, you know, that's we live in a capitalist society where money allows you and affords you certain comforts. And they say, no, the part where um, the vast majority of, of pollution in our water comes from the fertilizers that they're using in the water, you know, on the golf courses. And I, and I think, like, there's no way to clean that up. Like, there's no way to make that sound, like, there's no way for me, once I've heard that, not to be like, oh, yeah, well, golf courses, you know, they deserve, you know, a fair deal. And it's like, no, it, if, it suddenly made that so clear. So, in this scenario, when you, in this scenario, are thinking of a golf course, why are golf courses as an exclusive trapping of the wealthy elite and golf courses as a polluting agent for the local environment, different entity. Why is that not already a consideration into how you think about golf courses when asked about a golf course? Is it because you're ignorant of the environmental impact or I was, I was ignorant. I was ignorant of the environmental impact and and mostly just because it didn't, it hadn't occurred to me that the reason they're green because I come from a place where things are green. Where yeah. things are green, and it rains It's not a, a desert up there. No, no. Up, the, it, up there, it's actually called evergreen. Right, right. Yeah. We, I mean, I, I, my favorite joke is when my friend from Baltimore gets off the plane and is just kind of like, this thing's Photoshopped. Like, this is insane. Like, it cannot look this green. And I'm like, oh, no, this is, this is pretty much how it looks all the time. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that you would need to work that hard to maintain that green, that that green wouldn't just happen from, like, I mean, I understand putting out a sprinkler once in a while, uh, you know, not currently, but, uh, you know, we're the, the worst drought in, in history. But, um, yeah, I hadn't put the ecological disaster into it. And I think also, as as a young person, I hadn't put the socioeconomical disaster into it to say that that is that is really unfortunate that, again, it's this, this is the commons thing, right? The tragedy of the commons is, is that, am I saying that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. That that's, that's something we've tolerated now. You can build a golf course and you can be really specific about who gets to use it. And, uh, and it's not just like, like main, the maintenance, you know, like, Oh, well our, our membership maintains this. It's no, we've, we've tolerated to accept that, that the people who are allowed to, to have ownership over this land are superior, exist in a, in a higher level or st- I mean, it, station. It feels station. vaguely similar to the, um, steam oil drilling permit holders. The people who have been doing it so long, they get a, a, gran- a grandfather. Yeah, I mean the, that that term's used a lot lately for a lot of different things, but it it 
It seems logical, but it doesn't feel good. It doesn't. <laughs> I mean, you're asking, like, where does my, like, what defines my moral compass? And yeah. it comes down to what does my stomach say about these issues? The second brain. Why, what does the second brain say about it? What? Yeah, I mean, the reason I even pose the question is because, and I think this is trending the other way, but at least when I was in school and shortly out of school, there were people had the strict division between like politics and economics and you know all of the other things that fall between those two things and it's just like to me like there's no distinction between the two like the two are inextricable like you don't the the purpose of politics is to facilitate economics and vice versa and the, the majority of the politicking going on are business decisions being made and so not necessarily, you know, present company, but a lot of people, I ask that because you sort of have these two ideas of the golf course in your mind in that hypothetical situation. I was wondering why they weren't one, because I think a lot of people think of things on these different axes that do not relate when in reality they all intersect. And that is difficult for people to to grasp sometimes. And so they think of it morally one way on one axis and morally a different way on another axis and i think you have to take the whole picture to decide how you feel about something i have to say for me the best day of my life was when i realized that i didn't give two shits about the american legal or judicial or penal system so i got to define my own moral compass from that day on and that's a lot of fun <laughs> how does that that is a, a fantastically bold statement that deserves more explanation when and how did that happen how did how did how did you put aside all of the programming that came, that comes from uh, the contemporary American society to say these are the these are the things to hold in reverence uh, outside of religion and family? These are the things that you have to adhere to. Well, for me, it was an overload of information and statistics, like the fact that over half of our prison population is black, whereas like just over 10% of our population at large is black and they don't commit crimes at any higher, higher rate or of a more severe nature than any other demographic in the country. Um, you know, just flat math on that. Yeah. Just Cannot like not work. Like there's, there's, there has to be another element involved because <laughs> right. the, there's not, when you add the math, there's, there's not, the math does not add. Yeah. So there's got to be some element uh, infiltrating here and causing an effect yeah. that I don't see. And, you know, you think about, how recently like pr pretty much the 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 impetus for me was the fact that it's all based on a racist system like the country was built on racism it was built on so like you can't give it any authority right from the beginning right so from the get-go so like the judicial system we had mandatory minimum sentencing which they're working on phasing out right um, in oregon it was called chapter 11 Okay. And it's and it wreaked havoc on every right everything. Yeah, you have um, up until like 2004, I think we had sentencing standards that crack cocaine would right. be sentenced at 100 to one, the sentence of powder cocaine. Right. And chemically exactly the same, but it happens that more black people use crack cocaine and more white people use powder cocaine. Because the distribution is that in, in inside of markets, inside of socioeconomic markets, is such that it's one's branded one way and one's branded the other. Right. Um, so you, so pretty much for me, the jumping off point was that, oh, all of this stuff is racist and is designed to perpetuate itself forever as a racist system that screws over predominantly minorities and then 
poor people and then women and then other gender and sexual minorities. So you've got... But not necessarily in that order. No, I mean... We'll, I mean, just, we'll yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll be oppressive to whoever. Yeah, exactly. You know, is here. I mean, whoever is... If you're not a wealthy white dude, we're just probably not looking out for you. So that made it real... And I suggest this to everyone is to, you know, maybe you don't go as far as I do in not believing in our judicial system or penal system, but think about... When, next time you're doing a moral analysis, think about how you feel about it outside of what the law says you should feel about it. Sure, right. Right, which is to say that, that um, uh, Utah Phillips used to have this great story about uh, anus, am- anus ans- a young man who was an anarchist. <laughs> Who would God? He had such a good name. He was standing for the judge, and the and the judge would say, you know, you know, you you got to have laws, and and the, he would say, you know, your laws don't matter. You don't you don't need a law to tell me that it's not okay to kill people. Right. And, and if you get rid of that law tomorrow, people aren't going to start killing people. Right. Just out of the sake of like, there's no law to inhibit it. That's not what's stopping people. It makes my stomach hurt. It makes my stomach hurt. And and you know, his statement was. The, the laws, the good people don't need them and the bad people don't follow them. Right. So what you've got here is just a negotiation of penal. Right. Like how we're going to punish you after the fact. How do we evaluate how bad what you did is? Yeah, I said it like that. Yeah. No, yeah, totally. I mean, and I will say, I'll be the first to acknowledge that more often than not, the conclusion I come to is pretty much in line with the law as it's written. But then it comes down to the law as it's prosecuted doesn't match up with the law as it's written for whatever reason, be it ferguson be it trayvon martin be it yeah. any of a myriad of other things that end up happening um, it doesn't it doesn't seem to make sense to to say i mean the, the results the thing that we have in place listed as a deterrent and by and by the way some of that early statement that you had there those mandatory minimums and stuff like that came out of michael dukakis is my understanding from when he they were there were um they it was used against him that he that during a uh, furlough I want to say a prison furlough or something, which which is an old practice where they used to say, hey, at certain times we can let prisoners go uh, to be with their families for special events or certain things that they need to do because we're humane and we understand that people need to maintain – they need to have something that they're still striving to get back to, which is their family. And if you eliminate that completely, if you eliminate this idea that there's there's any hope that you will ever have a normal life again, then they are really hard to you. This is why it's decimated the, the, the prison system so badly is because – mandatory minimum puts puts a pressure on the system that can't possibly wasn't built for and and not trained for and you know on and on and on but um that idea that 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 we're just going to blindly just like fix it with well we'll just we'll just take it away from you we'll take life away from you and 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 then we're going to turn you into a there, there's a there's a point where timeout no longer works it do, right exactly it does it doesn't do anything to support me in the community or, or the family or whoever. It's a, it's a really expensive non-solution. <laughs> but it takes people out of the position of me having to, like, I don't want to look at it, I don't want to worry about it, I don't want to think about it, we'll just put them, put them in a box, we'll just not talk about it. Can we just do that? No. You can't, you can't walk away from, from a group of people that are in your community and do that. And this, this is back to the, where does my horse go? Okay, we're in this little, small, undeveloped town, and somebody commits a crime, and it's like, well, where do you put them inside of the town if you don't have a jail cell? You know, like literally, like, okay, now we have to build a jail cell. And it has to be so strong that it permanently holds somebody in for for periods of years. And on top of that, now the town has to feed this person. Right. 
and 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 accommodate this person in every way because you've just dismantled all of the pieces of of their self sustainability. They can't go forage for food. They can't make a living. They can't do, they can't trade uh, work for goods. They can't do anything except sit there and and use your resources. Which then leads to even more astounding and terrible conclusions of what to do about it. Like cut a hand off. Yeah. That'll teach them. So, yeah. So then you end up with stuff where like. Colorado prisoners are farm f- fish farm farming tilapia for your Whole Food stores, and you have that's amazing a literal cotton plantation yeah operating in Chain Angola gang. yeah with sh- you know sheriffs on horseback yeah managing a chain gang that's eighty percent black literally picking cotton in a cotton field to this day. Because they gotta earn wait, their no, keep. But you're talking about prisoner. like you're talking about like 40 years ago, right? I mean, that's nope, not that's nope. wait 2014. No, nope. Angola in the in the future. But this is like Jetsons time, right? I mean, yeah. like we could all fly to work with our helicopters, right? Like certainly yeah. we're not we're not still. You don't. Yeah. Glad <laughs> <laughs> Raymond's here for color, you know, not that kind of color. <laughs> still didn't have any of that. No. Not that. No. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. So. I mean, I'm not going to have any faith in local government until state government, federal government, anywhere, until we stop spending 80 plus thousand dollars a year per prisoner and only four thousand dollars a year per student. Per student, right. right. The student to prisoner gap is astounding. I'm just I mean, I'm just trying to think of how awesome we could be. And it gets worse. So much so much of my argument against um, everything that I argue against is that we take for granted all of the things that are already in place for us by the society that came before us, by the group of people that, that put in place an Im- the infrastructure that we reap all the rewards from. And, and it, with all of that in place, it's we are the spoiled children of the rich in the sense that we take for granted clean drinking water. We take for granted sewer systems that, that pump sewer from one place to the other. Um, we still have a long way to go on a lot of the environmental impacts of, of, of many of those decisions because based on the technologies they had available. But but essentially, we are we are all, you know, we don't lose children in, 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 uh, in infancy as much anymore, you know, and if we do, it's not, it's not as um, horrific, you know, it's tragic, but not horrific. Uh, you know, when, when children die, they're not, they're not dying from polio. We, we cured and eliminated polio uh, a horribly invasive in America in America. Very good point. Uh, but then, but then we start, you know, going backwards on so many of these, these topics. And that's exactly the point of like 2014. We, all of we are back to, or never left, uh, you know, this oppressive regime of, of when you've committed a crime, you are no longer have human rights and you're no longer valuable today. I was standing in the parking lot of the Wells Fargo on, Anna Kappa and Figueroa and they have a parking lot in the, behind the building and it, it butts up the back of the parking lot butts up to uh, the courthouse the the actual functioning Santa Barbara County Courthouse and there is a holding facility and then there is a series of chain link fences that lead into the courthouse that are covered with with tarp and then they're chain linked and I walked over to the edge of them to take a look because I, I kind of in my instinctually knew what I was looking at but um, it looks very much like the uh, back of a uh, animal hospital, a dog hospital down off Haley, 
yeah, that has um, that has these dog runs behind it, where where the dogs are let out individually so that they can't interact with any, any other dogs to you know still get the outside time. But and I was looking at this kind of like you know building this coalition between the two things and kind of just looking at the logistics of how they would move somebody from one building to another securely, as 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 if you couldn't just walk them through a parking lot. You couldn't just you know you couldn't just because you couldn't just walk out and walk through a parking lot. And I thought, God, this is the infrastructure that we've put in place to accommodate our imagination of how somebody's going to come steal our horse. You know, like somebody's going to come and break this guy out of here and we won't be because they, they watched the fugitive. And so, yeah, they, I mean, it's the paranoia that led to everyone locking their cars finally and getting security systems. And well, the percentage, because the percentage of, of, of the event rose into you know, like in our minds through it being projected on mass media. Right. So like, you take a very uh, statistically low thing like dying from shark attack and you show the one shark attack a year, it becomes, you know, this huge, huge, huge ordeal and everybody's terribly afraid of it. Yeah. I think paranoia is going to forever be profitable. Right. Right. So I'm standing there looking at this, at this transition center between the two buildings and I turn around and walk back and the very, I would say unprofessional looking security guard in his mid fifties says to me, can I help you? And I look at him and I say, no, I'm waiting for somebody who's in the bank. I'm fine. I was just wondering, is that the back of the courthouse where they do a transition between the two facilities? And he says, yeah. And I said, Oh, it, it looks like the back of the animal hospital down on Haley. And he says, Oh, animal of a different kind. <laughs> and I, and I, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it just it it looked very strange to me to have all that chain link. And he says, well, that's why I had to ask you what you what you were doing looking at it. And I thought, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, fella. Like, like what is going through your head? Worst case scenario here. I'm casing the joint. Right. And worst case scenario here. You there, John Law, you there, security guard in the middle of, you know, the parking lot. You're the parking oh, so, lot so security not, guard. So not even not a, a not a cop, employee. not a law enforcement official of any kind. OK, he's a guy wearing a white shirt with a plastic silver badge on it <laughs> and uh, and tucked in, tucked into his black pants and his orthopedic shoes and and his ball cap. And he's telling me, you know, and, and this is not my chip on my shoulder about authority as much as it is a little bit like. I'm sorry, I'm confused. Who are you in charge of? Because it's not me. You don't you don't possess an authority here. You you are like any other citizen in this in this case. You could make a phone call, but you can't call my mom. She's still going to like me. There's no part of nothing you can do. There's no no chance, but but you're you're trying to instill in me some authority of like, well, I was I had to check up on you there cuz you look dangerous looking at the fence like that. Could be a criminal. <laughs> or an animal, or of a both. different kind, or and it's a different kind of animal. And you're just gonna like yeah, that was the most clever thing you said all day. And here's the funny <laughs> thing: two really sad points about this. One, he went home and told his family about how like clever he was in the parking lot. And two, Didn't miss a beat, so smooth. And two, I just recorded it on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so now he's famous. He's super famous. The security guard. Hanging out at the uh, Wells Fargo on Figueroa and Anacapa. Too bad his badge number means nothing. Ah, oh, scratched in with a sharpie. Yeah, I don't. I I just I was I was putting I was parking in a parking lot and this guy walked out and I was I was just waiting 
to take a spot and I was parked in, I backed into a, uh, a permitted parking spot that was for, um, something else. I don't even know what else, but I kind of, in my mind, I'm thinking like, Oh, that's a carpool spot. I'm sitting in at five o'clock in the evening in a lot that is about to turn into a public lot. And I'm waiting to take this other lot. And I see this guy out of the corner of my eye wagging his finger at me. Like he's just walked out of the, the building, like one of the, one of the municipal buildings and he's wagging his finger at me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> this guy trespassing. Over yeah. Here. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to call the cops get me out of my and i i'm just i'm just those are those moments in my life where i'm just waiting to like what's your authority here again i'm sorry i'm confused because we're both just members of this community we're both just citizens that have the same ownership over this property we are in maintenance of this property how can why would you want to be mad at me i mean at least you're questioning it yeah i feel like 80 percent of the people they encounter see the wagging of the finger and leave or well to avoid it well, or or want to want to have some kind of. I mean, I guess I do want to have some kind of confrontation, but I hope that at the end of that confrontation, friendship arises. You know, not like yeah. like you're an idiot and I'm smart. Mutual understanding and friendship. No, yeah, I'm not looking to like diminish this person. What I'm looking to say is is how why would you want to diminish me? I, I I wasn't trying to. I wasn't. I I hate wrongfully accused. Look, that spot is for county employees only yeah. prior mm-hmm. to 5 p.m. Right. That's what, what time it was, was it again? Strictly enforced. 5:04. <laughs> I vote for I was just and I was looking at my phone pretending <laughs> to be not affected by the world around me. I am so unaffected. Such a strong man. Uh ladies and gentlemen, we're wrapping up coming down near the two hour mark of recorded topical conversation regarding our communities, our town, and our loved ones near and far here beneath the Balboa Building, 735 State Street, Suite 111. Just down the hall from the ping pong table, which is just down the hall from the Toastmasters tonight. And uh, you can find us on polstering.co uh, almost any day, anytime uh, on the internet. And we can be reached via email at that site. And you can, of course, always send your postcards with any questions that we will obviously answer on the podcast. To 735 State Street, Santa Barbara, California, 9101 Suite. 111. 111.